our scripture today comes from the book of Ruth. Um, you may know something of the book of Ruth. I don't know how deep your knowledge is. I'm going to cover just a little bit of it today, but uh, let me share with you from Ruth, uh, the first chapter, beginning at verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Naomi and Ruth. Uh, Naomi was um, a wife and mother of two boys. Naomi uh, was an Israelite. Ruth and her uh, other sister-in-law, Orpah, were Moabites. That's kind of important to know because at the time, um, Moabites and Israelites had no love for each other. Well, Naomi and her husband and two sons were in Israel, but things weren't quite right economically. Um, weather wasn't good. There was drought, famine. And so uh, they decided to leave Israel to go to another land. By the way, whenever the people of Israel decide to leave Israel, it never goes well for them. Scripturally speaking, just, just know that. Yeah, I, I, it, it occurs to me that every time um, Jesus uh, tells his disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm, they're leaving Israel and going to Jordan. There's never a storm coming back. The storm is always when you're leaving when you're leaving Israel, there was always, it was never good for the people of Israel to leave Israel. It didn't go well. But Naomi and her husband decided that the best life for their two sons and them was to head out of Israel. And they, they leave and they live in a land where, um, where the Moabites are. And the two sons marry. And the two daughters-in-law are Ruth and Orpah. For those of you who know uh, a certain person named Oprah, Oprah is a misspelling of the name Orpah. There's your trivia for the day. Um, so Orpah and, Naomi, Orpah and Ruth are the daughters-in-law. But there comes this time where uh, the father and sons go off to war. It's, it's interesting in the Bible that uh, there are places where it's, it's like seasons of the year. You know, we have winter and then spring and then summer and then fall. They had winter and spring and wartime and fall is kind of what they did. I mean, the, you'll see in the Bible sometimes it'll say things like, Old Testament, it'll say things like, um, in the season when kings go off to war. <laughs> well, you don't go off to war when the weather's going to be bad. You go off to the war when the weather's going to be good. And so that was always summer. And it was odd, but that was what they did. It was, you know, it's campaign season. Only theirs was physical war, not political. Uh, so in the midst of that campaign season, they go off to war and they die in the war. Now, three widows together was not a successful family in that day. And Naomi just hoped. She knew she was past childbearing age. She just hoped uh, 
that she could go back to Israel and find some family member that would take her in. But there were never guarantees in that. It didn't have to happen. Somebody might, or everybody might not. And so she urges Orpah and Ruth to go back to their family in hopes that somebody will take them in, and maybe in hopes that they can marry and have children and, uh, again, begin a family. Orpah takes her up on it and fairly quickly leaves, but, Na- but Ruth says to Naomi, no. As a matter of fact, Naomi encourages Ruth three times, and that's significant because back in that day, and even in the time of the rabbis, and even uh, uh, today, um, I don't know about the exact teaching today, but, but, but the, the, the people of Israel's faith, the people of the God of Jesus Christ um, prior to that, would, would say if a proselyte, meaning somebody who's going converting from one God to another God, if a proselyte comes to convert, you tell them no three times. Three times you turn them away. And if they persist, And if you read what comes right after the scripture I read, you tell them how dangerous it is if you stick around. How dangerous it is to become a follower of the God of Israel. There's an evangelistic strategy. I think that'll work into my next, no. And that that shows up. Actually, Naomi says, you know, it's not going to go well for me even if you come with me. But But Ruth refuses to turn away. She has this depth of devotion toward Naomi. So deep that that, uh, we actually, you know, in order to to make it sound good in English, um, it it says, uh, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Uh, But... In order to make it make sense in English, we add in that part that says will. The way it actually reads is, your God, my God. Your people, my people. It's it's a statement that is firm. It's not a, you know, I'm going to go along and your people will be my people, your God will be my God. No, she's not playing. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. She is all in. She's thoroughly devoted to the idea of sticking by Naomi's side. This fierce loyalty, this devotion to Naomi plays out in in an interesting way because Ruth is a Moabite and the people of Israel hate the Moabites and God even tells them, destroy the Moabites. But yet this Moabite becomes the great-grandmother of their great king, David. God redeems the names of the Moabites in the life of Ruth. She becomes the great-grandmother of David and therefore is a part of the lineage then that ends up in Jesus Christ because of her devotion. 
because of the way that she devotes herself to Ruth. Ideas like this, like devotion, are, are carried forward from Old Testament to New Testament. Not every idea. I mean, the idea of this is the season we go to war um, isn't a part of New Testament thinking, but the idea of devotion is a part, an important part of New Testament thinking. We're doing this worship series where we're talking about the, the many one-anothering passages. And I, I said last week that, that love one another is sort of an overarching, an umbrella to all of the others. But how we define what that love is, is defined in all of those other one-anothering passages. To get to a sense of what that love is, we'll also talk about honor one another. That's next week. Submit to one another, accept one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, spur one another on. Some Old Testament concepts we don't carry forward, but some are important precepts in the New Testament. And, and this Old Testament concept of being devoted to one another is carried forward. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 10, we read, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. So like I said, this week we're talking about devotion. Next week we're going to hit honor. Devotion, devoted to one another. Devotion to God is, is what we understand is our worship. We, we devote our lives to God um, in, in our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, that sort of thing. Um, Jesus quotes a passage when, when Jesus is asked, what's the most important of all of the commandments in the Old Testament? And Jesus, Jesus says, well, you know, um, the most important one is love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. But then he carries it forward and quotes from the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do we love our neighbor? There must be something like loving God and loving our neighbor are equated as part of the same thing. We love our neighbor with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbor and we love one another with this deep sense of devotion. So as we read this Romans passage, the word devoted comes from a Greek word, philostorgos, which literally would describe the devotion or the love that a parent has for a child. It encompasses that, that sense of care and duty and responsibility that you have toward your children in raising them in the, the most healthy of ways. And then it also, we devote in the way of love. Philadelphia is the word for love there. It's the same word as the city of brotherly love, right? Philadelphia. So it is philostorgos plus Philadelphia. They're combined together, and it's meant for us to understand that this kind of devotion has a familiar sense to it, meaning a family sense to it. Meaning that we're, we're meant to understand ourselves in the Christian body as those who love one another as a family. I don't know how many of you uh, grew up in a church or, or, or an area where, where people would say, hey, Brother Dave and Sister Nancy. Um, some of you may have grown up with that, with that um, sense. And it was, it's, it was the way, and maybe in losing this in our vernacular, we lose a sense of what's important, and that is that we are meant to be family. 
We talk about church family once in a while. We're, we're meant to understand ourselves in, as family in the best sense of the word. So devotion is, is this, this sense of love for family. This, this past uh, uh, week, and I don't know, it felt like two years, but this week and a half, no, I'm kidding, Nancy. She knows where I'm going with this because um, Nancy had her birthday last week, and so um, her, her family was in town from out of town, all of her uh, uh, sisters and, and her brother and her, her father and his wife and some of them were staying at our house, like 82 of them, and no, it was, it was five. Um, <laughs> a lot of family love, but our children, too, were in town, and, and our grandchildren were around, and, and, uh, and, you know, it's real easy for a grandfather to, to feel that sense of love. And, and I, as I'm reflecting on this sermon, um, on, on uh, Friday night, we were at a hotel in Macon, Missouri, because our, our youngest daughter uh, had her birthday this past week also, and then our two-year-old grandson has his birthday, and so we're celebrating those birthdays. We're in the swimming pool um, and with our grandchildren and some of our children, and, and um, it was so loud and boisterous, and, and no other family would come in the pool at the time. And, but I, I remember... I I remember playing and thinking, oh man, this sense of this depth of love and, and devotion to one another and this care for one another and, this, and, and splashing one another um, is what the church is meant to be. It's, it's, it's what's intended. It's not just that we are a congregation of people who, who go to church with one another. We are meant to be family in the best sense of the word. And so with these two words, Philostorgos and Philadelphia, we, we learn that devotion to God is worship. Devotion to one another is kinship. When the Bible tells us to be devoted to one another, it's talking about a kinship, a, a relationship to one another, that, that we're supposed to care for one another in the same way that a parent cares for their child. It's at this point in the worship service we should be having a church-friendly version of Sister Sledge's We Are Family. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you just go listen to the oldies. This devotion to one another is, is recognition that the church is family. The way Jesus illustrates this is... In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, there's this story of Jesus and, and his followers and his family. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my, mother, my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is not rejecting Mary and his brothers at this point, his blood brothers. What he is doing is he's elevating those who follow him to the level of brother and sister. Not turning away from blood but elevating them to the level of blood relation. You are my brothers and sisters, he would say to us. In Christ, we become brothers and sisters to each other, and there's this great sense that we're, we're intended to love and care for each other in that way. Not in the way of nobody hits my little brother but me. 
I maybe did that a little too often as a child, but rather to treat one another with that, that healthy sense of love and respect, to care for one another's needs as a mother would her child, to go above and beyond when it comes to caring for those who are elderly and, and infirm and poor and disadvantaged. Do, do any of you know what the fifth commandment is in the Ten Commandments? Does anybody know what the fifth one is? I, I heard it. Honor your mother and father. I, you know, told my wife ahead of time so she could tell me. No, I'm kidding. She, she knew that. So, the, the Ten Commandments could be broken up in this way. The first four relate to your devotion to God. The next six relate to how you relate to one another. You might call it devotion. Um, most of it is, is in the negative. It is don't kill, don't steal. But there's that, that transition one, that one in between the top four and the next six, which is number five, honor your mother and father. But it, it goes deeper than that. It says this in Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you'll live a long time in the land that God, your God, is giving you. There's, there's, it's the only commandment, by the way, with a promise. Honor your mother and father so that your life will be long in the land I'm giving you. So the, the background behind that is important because we often say that, that we, we won't tell these kids this so that they don't know the secret. We'll just keep it among us, us adults. It had nothing to do with little children. So when we tell your children, honor your mother and father, it had nothing to do with that. What it, what it was is that, that uh, the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You wander in the wilderness for 40 years, somebody's going to die, Right? Somebody's going to grow old, right? As a matter of fact, in their wilderness wandering, the point was that everybody that was there from the beginning of the wandering would be dead by the time they were allowed to go into the promised land. Now, if you were a Bedouin people in that day, and you grew older, you had a responsibility to your family. And that responsibility went like this. I'm old, I can't carry my own weight, I'm going to wander off into the wilderness and die. That was your responsibility. That's what you had to do. And if you didn't, then it was the job of your family to go, Mom, Dad, you just sit right there, we'll be right back. Honor your mother and father meant... God was saying to the people, my people don't act like that. My people don't care for one another that way. My people honor the elderly so that when they're elderly, they'll be honored as well. So that we have this generational understanding that we care for one another. It came home to me in, in the deepest way at one point in our life. It was maybe 10, 12 years ago. I keep looking over to my wife wanting cues on this, but just bear with me, Nancy. <laughs> I never tell stories exactly right. Um, so about 10, 12 years ago, Nancy's mother was becoming more and more reclusive, not being in as much conversation with us, even not wanting us to come over anymore. What we didn't know at the time was that Nancy's mother was entering into Alzheimer's 
And um, this was a symptom. She was beginning to hoard, and, and it, was, it was just hard to, uh, to care for her because she, she would push us away. At one point, um, we lived down in Jackson, Missouri, southeast Missouri, uh, a couple hours south of here. And at one point, um, Nancy happened to be in St. Louis with our daughter, Rachel, and um, Carl, her brother from out of town, called and said, have you talked to mom lately? And Nancy said, well, no, not, not real recently. And Carl said, well, I just talked with her, and she's talking really weird. Could you go check on her? You're anywhere near St. Louis? He was out of town, lived out of state at the time. And so Nancy uh, and Rachel, they were in Peevely by then, headed home, and they turned around and went back to Shrewsbury. They ended up having to break down the front door and found Pat on the ground, nearly dead. And I won't go into all the details of that, but they rushed her to the ER, and, and the, the people at the ER said, I mean, she was hours from death, and they rehydrated her and, and took care of her. There were infections and things like that. And, and um, and uh, over, over a period of, of a few weeks, she, w- went to, she was in the hospital and then went to a recovery, uh, um, a rehabilitation center. Um, and then it was time to go home, but the siblings by then had talked, and there was no way mom could go home. Just no way. And it was then that I realized that in a modern-day sense, we had violated the fifth commandment. We had not honored Nancy's mother in the way we allowed her to walk away from the family. She wasn't walking away from the family. She was walking into a disease that ultimately would take her life. And we let her go there alone. In the end... um, we invi- invited, invited to funding ward because I went to Pat in, the, uh, in the, re- the rehabilitation place and I said, Pat, you're moving in with us. It wasn't a question. I said, you're moving in with us. And it happened that we, we lived at a parsonage down in, uh, in Jackson that had a, um, a completely finished basement. A, a previous pastor, um, when they built the house, built the basement. It, it had, I mean, it had kitchen and bedrooms and full bath and, and even a fireplace, though Pat was on oxygen, so that was a no-no. But it had all of that stuff and a walkout to a driveway, a separate driveway, so it was perfectly equipped for, for a mother-in-law, and we moved her into our house. Uh, until the point at which, um, well, it, it, at some point we said, you know, Pat can't even be in our house alone um, when we go to work, and so we hired somebody to come in. And no, we didn't count the cost. Uh, yeah, we divided it up amongst the siblings, but, but it wasn't, you know, now what, it was, this is what we do. This is how you're supposed to care for family. And eventually, Pat did get to the point where we were not able to physically care for her in our home. It just, it was beyond our ability to care. And so we moved her into a nursing home that was close enough that Nancy visited almost every day, if not every day. And I visited probably once a week. But we were regular there to assure that her care was, was being well taken care of. The point to this is that what if, what if the church understood itself as family like that? What if the church understood ourselves that, that you know what, if somebody walks away, we got to get in their business. 
we got to care enough to find out why aren't you here. And, and, and to say, you know what, I, I want to care for you. Let me tell you how. It's not a question, can I? But let me share how it's going to be done. Not, not to, to trample on anybody's rights or anything like that, but, but to be very clear that if the church is family, this is how the family acts. This is what it means to be devoted. Devotion to God is our worship, but devotion to one another is kinship. Living with one another is family, deeply committed to one another's care and well-being, never counting the cost of caring for one another, but rather counting it as loss if we don't. Amen and amen.